<clears throat> Hello? Hello, John. Thanks for rescheduling with me. Hey, Dan. Of course. Anytime. How's everything going up there in uh, Great Seattle? Oh, here in La La Land, yeah. the opposites of La La Land. Yeah, I What's guess it like we're, we're <laughs> La Di Da Land. Oh, things are good. You know, we've we started our winter rain. Ah, best time uh, of year to been, visit. It sounds like. Yeah, we've been holding off. You know, a lot of a lot of the time, the winter rain would have started by now, but it just seems like it's just getting rolling, just getting rolling right now. Yeah. You know, I saw your post, your Instagram post, in which you were talking about a cool store that you used to work in, and um, uh, and it's now what is it now a Subway or something? No, it's a Verizon store. Oh, that's even worse than a Subway. <laughs> yeah, a Verizon store, right in the heart of the, right in the heart of the of the district. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, ah, I went to you know. There's this little. There's this little sort of, uh, you know, what I guess you would call it somewhere between an antique store and a junk store right? in George- Georgetown that's run by a guy a little bit older than I am, mm-hmm. um, gay guy from who came from Arkansas or something to Seattle back in right about the same time I came to Seattle back in about 1990. And he's running this store and he's got pretty good taste and he and I have become friends Sometimes I'll go in and sit in his little antique store and just sit on the couch and we'll talk about the old days. And he had a he had a very different experience than I did because he wasn't interested in rock and roll. He thought of himself as a literary person and uh, you know disdained rock. But nineteen, you know, early nineties, it was a very pregnant time in gay culture. You know, AIDS was rampant right and just destroying everything but also it was terrible it was the yeah it was and it was a kind of waning day for for what was so great about sort of in a a way i guess you would say like pre-liberation or in the in the throes of the of liberation the gay culture there when i when i moved to seattle there still was a um you know, there still was a court of Seattle, which which was the drag court, and it was still a big part of the the cultural underground. And there was a there was the leather court, and and they were pageants, you know, and there was a lot of pageantry to it. Um, and I was lucky enough to be exposed to it because I worked in a gay bar, and I wouldn't have known about it otherwise, or it would have just been, it would have seemed like part of the weird you know when you walk around in the international district and you see a poster for like the vietnamese american you know like winter pageant and you go huh that's interesting i don't know (laughs) what that is probably (laughs) probably won't attend um and there were you know there were posters for for the court of seattle pageants and stuff on you know within the within that small neighborhood Anyway, he and I are always sharing stories because we were living par- somewhat parallel lives, although we n- know a lot. We haven't really explored like the people we know in common, but mm-hmm. but we know we know that we surely do. But he was a bartender at the Cuff, which was the sort of uh, it was the bigger of the leather daddy bars, um, and the one that I mean, they were all the leather daddy bars were a little bit. Hey, John. More. John, yeah, what's a leather daddy bar? <laughs> I mean, it's a gay bar, but it it focuses on 
the within the within the gay uh, camp, there are a lot of different versions of of camp, and the leather side of it, which is the side that you would see where where there were a lot of macho archetypes being played with. You know, it's kind of the village people thing, the cops, the I got it. Construct, okay. construction worker, the fireman, uh, the guys with mustaches and muscles as opposed to like the drag queen mm. style of camp, which is, you know, exaggerated femininity. So the leather thing, but the leather thing is funny because it's very tough and there's a lot of, they wear chaps and denim and, and the, the reason I'm saying it in this way, chaps and denim is that, <laughs> um, that to outward appearances, right? They're like super duper macho, uh, right, all this sort of like very strong male, you know, stereotypically macho type. Right. Yeah. Right. But, and within the leather culture, they're all, you know, that, that culture is very ser- serious or it can be a little self-serious in that the people within it, some of them really are like, you know, they're they're they, it doesn't seem as much that they're playing as, mm-hmm. as it does that they're serious about like being tough and, and into bondage and, and discipline and master slave type of stuff. But it's also a part of the gay culture. So it's, there's a sensitivity to it. Or, I mean, I, I remember when I used to work the leather nights at the, at the off ramp the first time, you know, I, I, I was back behind the bar and it was my job to go out into the restaurant or into the, into the room. And, you know, I was 21 and I remember looking out from behind the bar and the bartender was this kind of lipstick lesbian who was real, you know, she was real spunky and, and she looked at me and I was looking at, you know, looking out from behind her bar. And mm-hmm. she said, you got to go out there eventually. I was like, well, I know, but I'm just like getting my, I'm just getting my strength or whatever. And she was like, you know, don't worry, you'll be fine. But you know, like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta just take that first step. And you know, and I walked out into the room and uh, from the standpoint of someone who's just going on the visuals alone, it's like, it's, it, well, it looked like a biker bar, like the ultimate sort of biker danger bar. Right. And I knew biker bars from growing up in Anchorage and there, those were truly dangerous places. Like you wouldn't walk across a room full of hell's angels and not get, uh, at, you know, you'd better keep your eyes on the floor. Mm-hmm. And I walk out and it was, it was this incredible, um, experience because although they all look, you know, everybody in the room looks like ready to kill you, they're all talking kind of softly mm-hmm. with each other and the music's kind of playing at a like reasonable volume and the room kind of, sm- it smells really good, you know, kind of smells like lavender and a little bit of, you know, there's a- other, you know, sort of sandalwood scents. And walking through the room, I was just, you know, was treated by everyone in a very lovely way. No one, you know, no one assaulted me or anything and and no one was mad. Right. (laughs) There was nobody had a chip on their shoulder. It was like this delightful room full of lovely people, but all like really 
really rawr looking. And, uh, and so uh, anyway, this com- with the conversation that, that Mike, my friend and I, my new friend and I were having about it because he attended bar at the, at this bar, the cuff, which was because the off ramp had leather nights mm. and the, and the reason was that it had a, it had a big stage. It was a theater. It was, it ended up being a rock club. And so if you were going to have a pageant, if you were going to have a event, you would, you would have it at, at the off ramp and the off ramp had one night a week that was devoted to leather culture. But the cuff, the cuff was seven days a week, you know, as long as whatever the hours were, you know, till 4am, it was just devoted to like leather denim kind of, kind of culture. I mean, you can walk in there in any state of being, but you'd be interested in that. And, uh, and so from the outside, you always looked at the cuff. There was another one called the Eagle, which was a much smaller and even seem, seem the, the stories that came out of the Eagle were that it was just really raunchy. Like you'd go in there and there'd just be two guys fucking on the bar. Wow. But all of that was this kind of, it was, it was like the legend of those places, right? It was the, it was the reputation or the rumor of them, but having worked in bars in Seattle, I know what the liquor control board is like here and they are fucking nuts. The liquor control board in Seattle is, is they are the ultimate cops, right? And if you, if they walk into a bar and the cigarette machine is out of matches or whatever, they'd shut the bar down. You know, they, they were draconian about what they would do. So if they walked in and there was anybody that was doing anything crazy, they would have, it would have been the end of the bar. So, so those legends, you know, they would filter out into the town like, oh, you know what I saw at the Eagle? But it was all just, it was all just people, just gossip and play. And I mean, there are so many people that never went into the Comet, which was the bar that I drank at. Like, like my friend Mike was like, I wouldn't walk into the Comet to save my life. And I said, you worked at the Cuff. And it was, you know, only five blocks away or the Cuff was, yeah, four blocks away. And, you know, the Cuff was supposed to be really scary. Uh, because people were like, uh, doing, you know, there were glory holes in the bathroom or whatever. And he was like, I wouldn't have gone into co- to the comet. <laughs> you paid me 50 bucks. And I was like, the comet was just full of bike messengers. I don't know what, but it was, but it was skanky, you know, or it was a skeezy bar, but every bar in Seattle was skeezy then, or at least in downtown Capitol Hill, there weren't any nice places. Mm-hmm. Where, where would you go for an, you'd go, you'd have to go to a hotel to have, if you wanted to be fancy. Right. If you wanted to have a drink that was made by a by a bartender that was wearing a tie, yeah, you'd have to go to the Sheraton. I guess the Cloud Room. Anyway, I'm just talking about bars and nobody <laughs> that, listening that, that to the no, show has ever heard no of. No one listening has heard of any of these except for the other <laughs> like old guy in from Seattle is like, I remember the club. <laughs> and I've been sober for twenty five years. So I like the the culture of these places, <laughs> who knows what they are. Although I'm sure that Everything's cleaned up, right? But um, everything's cleaned up and is safer and nicer now than it was. But they're all still they're play acting the same stuff. The comet is still play acting that it's that it's um, sleazy, and the and the cuff is still play acting that it's that it's rough. But but Mike was saying, uh, you know, the cuff couldn't have been a tamer place, really. Uh, because there was something about it that was always play acting and he had, because he's a 55 year old gay guy from Arkansas who's like, no, the, the, the last time any of that was, 
you know, it was never real. Even in New York City in 1975, it was always it was always a game. But things by the time it was the 90s in Seattle, things were already there was a liquor control board. Let's put it that way, um, as opposed to some Wild West situation where where there wasn't anybody in charge. But if you go to if you go to San Francisco now, if you're in the Castro during Gay Pride, I mean, you'll see naked people. You'll see people. Uh, just sort of walking around the street, you know, like kind of flagellating one another with (laughs) cat of nine tails. (laughs) And it's, and, and at at one level, like if you came from Nebraska and you'd never seen anything, just like me coming from Alaska at 21, looking out at that room and going like, Oh fuck, I've got to go out there. And my, my, (laughs) my bartender friend, like, good luck, you know, hope you don't get like eaten. I'm like, oh shit, am I going to get eaten? And she's laughing. <laughs> but if you go to the Castro and you walk around and you see all this stuff, got, you know, somebody with this, with a leash around his neck and whatnot, right, right. you know, it seems pretty, it seems pretty nutty, but it's really, it's really just a, you just turn the dial on what you, on what normal is a couple of clicks, but nobody's really doing anything that's that crazy. Because there really isn't that much, there's not, stuff isn't really that crazy. I mean, the people that you look at and go like, oh, they're so vanilla. They're the ones that are into scat porn or, or whatever, you know, right. they're the ones that are, that are doing crazy shit. Um, there's a thing in San Francisco of all the cities in the country where they got into the culture there, got into edgy uh, sex edgy, you know, like culturally, um, mainstreamed edgy sex practices where you would go to a party in a, in a, they had, they have sex clubs and you would go to a party in a club and there would be two people having sex and it would be a humiliation scene. And so it would, and this is not just like a club where everybody there is there to have sex. Mm. There are clubs where people go and stand around in their street clothes or like even dressed up and watch other people do tricky stuff. And part of the whole thing is that they're doing like some humiliation sex, which requires that there be people standing around mm-hmm. watching it. That's right, part of right. the, you know, and all this kind of, you know, all this bondage stuff and, uh, and submissive submission stuff that seems real edgy. And within, within San Francisco, it became kind of like, I don't know if you were, if you were cool and I'm talking about recently, if you're cool, if you're like a tech person who is not the run of the mill tech person, if you've got, if you, if you're young and have money and think you're cool, there would, you'd be part of this, um, other hot danger mm-hmm. sex thing. Mm-hmm. But just like all of that stuff, it's very performative. And I don't want to say it's not actually dangerous because it, it can really, it can really fuck up your head. I think, I think it messes with people's heads pretty hard, but it's, I remember in the early nineties there were, I I knew a lot of girls that, that, um, that did strip tease and Lucky. they did it. Yeah. 
Because I, I, I never knew any when I was at that age or now. Well, but but it was <clears throat> at the at that point, early nineties. It was coming from a <clears throat> a real female empowerment mentality, um, because uh, there were the clubs in Seattle were conscious of it. There was one in particular called the Lusty Lady that was owned by women. <laughs> And the, and the whole mentality was like the women are in charge of this scene, you know, guys come in and they put their quarters in the, in the slot and the, and the thing goes up. Right. And, and it was suicide girls kind of vibe, a lot of tattooed girls, a lot of, you know, alternative girls that were like, Oh, you want to see me naked? Okay, here you go. How do you like that? Dummy. (laughs) Um, and, and so there was something sexy and dangerous about it because it was not your it it wasn't what you thought then was your typical kind of you know striptease scene yeah and so i knew a lot of the people that were in that world because we were all in our early 20s and we were it was all alternative um and i did you know dated a couple of people that went through that phase but the but what a, at least my experience of their experience was that even though they were empowered uh, or in an empowered position, that exchange of money for um, even like no touch kind of that sex exchange mm-hmm. has a profound effect on your mind. Um, and it 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 uh, it changes how you think about other people and then sexual desire and yourself as a person. And if somebody's on the other side of the glass and they're like, turn around, you know, bend over, act like you're act like you want to throw up. I was like, really? <laughs> yeah. Act like that's what I want. You know, I want to see you like act like you're about to throw up. And she's like, okay, I guess so. I'm, you know, he's feeding money into the thing. Uh, but you come home from that and it's kind of hard to wash it off, you know, hard, and particularly if you get into the, if the money's good, you get into that cycle and bartenders get into this. A lot of people who's, and I'm, frankly, carpenters do. If you're using your body to earn a living and, um, and the money's good, you get caught in a cycle where you can't get out and you're like, I'm just going to do it for another year and then I'm going to bounce on this. But do you mean just because you, it's so easy to make good money and, and easy to do or easy to do? Like it doesn't require that you, uh, you know, you don't have to do any hard math, but also you don't have to manage anybody. You're kind you feel a little bit like an independent contractor, like a bartender has to deal with a manager and, and everything. But while they're tending bar, they're sort of, you know, the master of the situation and they're dealing with, the customer, they are the star kind of, and they have a set of skills and they can do it and they, and they get paid well for it. And if you're, you know, I think if you're working in a, in a really big bar environment or a corporate bar environment, maybe you have some meddling super architecture of managers and, and other managers that make your life just feel like you're working in a cubicle. But even then, I think if you're just, if you're making drinks for people and they're coming up and they're like, I want two bloody Marys. And you're like making the bloody Marys. You are in, in that 
in the performance of your job, you're independent and you know at the end of the day, you you walk out, you clock out, you've got the money and you don't have to, the, the, I think the dream is you don't have to bring any of it with you. You don't bring any of it home um, because every day you start again. And, but you're also watching people at their worst in a way, because as the night progresses, you're serving people that are getting shittier and shittier. Mm -hmm, Right. And every night at the beginning of the night, you're like, Hey, people getting off work. You're like, I'm giving them their first drink of the night and everything's, you know, I'm like the source of happiness for people. (laughs) But at 1130 at night or one in the morning, like everybody sucks now, uh, Oh, not necessarily. I mean, you know, there are a lot of bars that have a great vibe at 1130 at night, but the bartender is seeing, you know, any, a good bartender is watching the room and they're like, okay, this person has had a lot to drink. I don't want to deal with cutting them off, but I have an obligation to at a certain point, you know, they have to manage a bunch of drunks. That doesn't sound so, fun. Well, but you know, if you're making 400 bucks a night. Yeah. Yeah. We would like to say thank you very much to Health IQ for sponsoring this episode. You know, there are a lot of you out there listening to this program that, uh, like like me, we're trying to be in the best shape that we can be. We work out. You know, maybe you run. Maybe you deadlift. Maybe you swim. Maybe you do uh, Pilates. You're trying to improve your quality of life by being healthier. And Health IQ understands this, their goal is to use science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for people like you, people who are actually trying to extend their life through health. So if you're a runner or a cyclist, or if you're into CrossFit, even just somebody who is like a weekend warrior, if you're a vegetarian, they think you should be rewarded for your hard work uh, with more affordable life insurance rates. And they can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risk for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. And, uh, and, and so that's what they do. And they, they go through the entire process of applying the policy and it's underwritten. I mean, this is, uh, this is a, a really good deal for people who want to get rewarded for the hard work that they put in on themselves trying to be healthy. And uh, to see if you qualify, you can go to healthiq.com slash roadwork, H-E-A-L-T-H iq.com healthiq.com slash roadwork they've got this cool little quiz it's fun to take but then depending on your score as well as other qualifying factors you can save up to 41 percent on those premiums compared to other providers if if this sounds interesting to you and you want to get rewarded for the hard work that you're putting in go check it out and they they acknowledge all different kinds of exercise all different kinds of health levels based on your activity based on everything uh, so if, if if this is something that you think applies to you, it's definitely worth a look. Healthiq.com slash roadwork and get rewarded for all that hard work. And so this is the thing. You get caught in this cycle. And if you are camming or stripping or working as a carpenter or anything where you – where what you're doing is you're trading your physicality mm-hmm. for money and – and the promise of it is you can leave it behind when you go, when you leave, you don't have to go home and work on reports. You don't have to, uh, you, you don't have to feel like you're caught on an ambition treadmill because you're making, you're making a fine living and it feels almost like 
uh, it, it, those jobs, a lot of times they start out feeling transitional. Like I'm going to do this for a couple of years to save up money, to go to college, to, to do what I want. But you get caught in that money thing. And then you arrive at a point where you feel like, oh shit, my body and my, like stripping at least gets inside your brain. Carpentry maybe doesn't, but, but carpentry destroys your body. Like, you know, labor breaks your hands. It breaks your knees. And if you don't move into management, if you don't become a supervisor, if you don't get out, get off the floor, then you're really stuck. You know, then you're, um, then every day you're, you're, you can feel yourself breaking down and, um, and now you feel like, oh, I'm 50 and I haven't, I haven't leapt to somewhere. And now I see the end in the distance, but I see where I'm not going to be able to do this forever. And it's a, I guess it's a thing that happens to everybody when they're 50. Oh shit. You know, I didn't, unless you get into banking, uh, mm-hmm. Like, am I going to be able to keep doing this? Mm-hmm. Like my mind, my mind is starting to get soft or my whatever. But the, but I started on the, I started on the sex thing and I, I've, I've noticed <laughs> coming out of San Francisco in particular, a lot of people who got into this type of thing in their, in their twenties and it's all play acting again, like all this daddy baby stuff and the, and the S and M, uh, culture, it all feels like fun and games when you're in your early twenties and it, and it, it's a little bit or in your mid twenties and thirties. Cause it feels a little bit like I can take it. Like I'm, I'm, um, I get out, I get a lot out of this. Uh, this, you know, explores aspects of my nature that, that vanilla people will never understand, but it's work. It's working on your mind the whole time. And you're, you're, uh, you look at other people differently and pretty soon you look at other people differently and you can't remember what it was like to look at them, um, without bringing this whole lattice work of, of experience where, where you're watching people explore the, um, the fringe of what, of what's sort of doable and I think you you know you you see it within within that sex culture. A lot of people they can't they just can't have regular sex anymore. It, they've lost the ability to find it. They've, like is, they've is that the, is that sort of the fear? Because I, rem, I I I think this was back in college, and um, I was talking to a friend of mine. He'd been dating his girlfriend for a really long time. Now this might have been right out of college. And they've been dating for a really long time. And, you know, we get in, in, into the conversation. I was kind of like, you ever, you know, like you ever done anything like risque or out there or anything? He's like, oh, no, no, no. And this is a guy who like, was not shocked by stuff. Like he wasn't the type of person who'd be like repulsed or anything. It was just, and I said, why not? He's like, well, even if I want to, he's like, once you go down that path, you can't ever go back. And it's like in, in his mind, if he were to do something a little kinky with his wife, or I guess, I guess they maybe even were married at this point that it's like, well, once you do that, like you can't, you can't just have regular sex again after that. It's always going to have to be weird. 
and you're saying maybe maybe there's some truth to that well not have to be but <clears throat> but yeah if you're if you're if you're if you're on the edge of um you know if if uh if you want to be well well let's just say like want to be humiliated mm-hmm. and you identify that as a as a thing that you find really titillating or it, or it uh, brings, you know, it brings out feelings in you. I mean, right. it's all feelings. Yeah. And, and you tie the, the sort of, you know, regular sex drive that's operating in all of us. You tie them to these conditions that you are, um, and, and, and it's not just, Pavlovian, right? It's not just that you've been spanked so many times that it's the only way you can, uh, it's, it's every time you, you hear the bell, you salivate. <laughs> right. Um, but, but in, in particular, these things that be, that, 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 um, where you never, where, where you're, where you're taking yourself seriously and you're taking the, culture seriously and that and those behaviors seriously you're not acknowledging that it's play <clears throat> and then you you arrive in middle age you've been taking them you've been taking that culture seriously and now it is serious i mean now you are um you are that and <clears throat> and i think you feel when you're young that you can walk in and out of these rooms or you can um you can experiment for a while, et cetera, et cetera. But if you, but if you, you know, soak in it too long, I do feel like it, <laughs> it, um, <laughs> like it, know, al- it alters what you, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think that's the whole problem with, with the ex- easy accessibility and prevalence and predominance of like, uh, like porn, these days, especially for young people, we've talked about, you know, like my, the first time that I saw that dirty magazine flipped open as the bus drove by and we like sprinted to get the magazine after, you know, like it was so that's such like, almost like a, sounds like almost like a 1950s story than the, in the, the cuteness of it, you know, mm-hmm. and there, there are teens now, like everything's right there. Everything's there. Everything's accessible. And it's like somehow uh, there, I, I have a friend whose daughter is probably, I, th- I think she's like 16, 17 years old now, maybe junior, senior in, in high school. And like the kind of stuff that he found her watching on the computer was like, um, like rape and domination fantasy stuff. And you could, I think you could argue that maybe a 16 year old doesn't really need to be seeing that right now. Like, I don't know. I, maybe I'm old fashioned or maybe I'm out of touch with, with that, but it, it seems like that stuff is something you kind of, you work up toward, you know, you don't, you don't start off with that, but when you're on the internet, you do start off with that. When it's 2019, you can go down these rabbit holes that you're talking about really quickly and they seem maybe normal. Yeah. Well, I, when you're a teenager and in your early twenties, <clears throat> I mean, the defining thing about your 
about the way your mind is is mostly constructed at those times is you feel like you're ready for every level of sophistication. You're, I mean, the last thing you want to hear from grownups is keep your innocence as oh, long as possible. Definitely. But I think you can lose your innocence uh, and, and learn about, uh, as, as you say, coitus without mm-hmm. going into the rape fantasy and thinking that, that, you know, being kidnapped and raped is a normal part of, uh, of what sex c- could be. Well, I, that is the, that is the danger of, of now. I mean, for, for me as a, as an interested teenager, my access, right. Just like yours mm-hmm. was extremely limited to whatever the material would be that would, because the, that material was really censored. Yeah. Oh, you yeah. couldn't just w- walk into a shop and, and find a magazine where people were even being tied up, let alone abused. Um, that was real specialty, uh, stuff because I think if you'd, I mean, if a shop had sold that kind of film or magazine, they would have been shut down by, by the morality police. I mean, which were real, right? There would be the cops would go in and, or whoever it was uh, in local jurisdictions that was charged with obscenity, enforcing obscenity laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, so ye, I, I, I do believe that if you're 18 and, um, and exposed to everything, it is corrosive because my God, your mind is very, very, um, new. Yeah. Very impressionable. And, 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 you know, and not done right. And, and right. it's not your, it's not your mind. It's your emotional mind. You're right. still, still building that. And if you attach too much of, you know, if you get too much stuff in there, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, be- before it's ready, right? Like the, there are all kinds of, of, uh, what we euphemistically described as perversions. I guess that's not a euphemism for anything that we, you know, that, that we categorized as, as perverse Mm -hmm. that now, of course, some of it we realize isn't perverse. It's, it's in people's nature or it's across the broad spectrum of, of, um, identity. But a lot of it is, um, is 100% like action oriented right? and, and is part of, um, you know, is, is toying with, it's, it, it toys with identity and, and where that line is, we're still adjudicating as a culture and there are all kinds of people right now. Well, the, there is a, a very active and still incredibly censured subculture of people who fall within the category of pedophiles. Mm-hmm. And we don't make a distinction between pedophiles that are interested in six year olds and pedophiles that are interested in 16 year olds. Right. The, you know, within the law, they don't really make a very clear distinction there. And I think in the courts, there's probably a, a distinction, but, but there's a lot of energy directed to 
forcing the courts not to make a distinction because there are a lot of people that want to prosecute um, people that are interested in 16-year-olds. Mm-hmm. But, you know, be, being interested in 16-year-olds isn't really a, a super aberration in the sense that it's a na- it's natural. We've dri- we've made a line somewhere in the sand saying that 16-year-olds are not grown-ups yet. Right. But traditionally, that was a marriageable age for anybody. Yeah, like, um, right. For, like the, for, you know, for thousands of years, that was you were you were an adult really at that yeah. age. Like, and and sure. if you if you were a man, you were you know like a like a you were a, a warrior or you were a landowner or or whatever. And maybe and, not a landowner, but certainly. A, but you might have inherited it from your very very right. very old father who passed away at thirty five. <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> yeah, certainly you were. You know, you could be if not married, betrothed. Right. Uh, my mom at 16 felt like, uh, she should have been emancipated Mm. and could have been married in Ohio. I think in 1949 or whatever, something like that. Um, but you know, if you're attracted to six year olds, you are not, that's not acceptable in any, any way, shape or form. Right. In any, any, culture really historically and right. it not, and certainly it, 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 um, it, uh, offends us. But of course the people that are, you presume didn't choose it. Right. Right. It seems like something no one would possibly choose because why would you, why would you do that to yourself? You know, why yeah. would you choose a thing that you were never going to find a sympathetic ear except in, except in someone else that's, that suffers from the same malady. And so when you think about the, when you think about the innateness of desire in people, do we categorize that as, um, we currently categorize it as a moral failing, right? We prosecute people as though it is a, an immorality. We don't pro we don't look at it as a disability or as a nature or as a, um, aberration. Uh, we, as an aberration, certainly, but not as a, uh, not as something that deserves sympathy, right? The, the, the idea within our culture of, of having sympathy for someone who is attracted to a six year old, it's uh, it, it, we can't even fathom it, but what a nightmare it must be to uh, to have been a child and then to grow into adulthood and to find yourself in a position where that is the only thing that uh, th- that your sexuality is connected to something so abhorrent mm-hmm. to everyone else that. And pr- and presumably in in most cases to you yourself. Uh, so within I think the world of pedophiles, there's there's this desire to be understood or known at least to be. A, but of course, you can't step into the light. You can't you can't step forward and say hello. I'm a pedophile. We we got a letter uh, on the after after show. Uh, a while back from somebody that was like, I've never acted on this. This is my nature. Right. I, I think my only option is to kill myself, mm-hmm. but I, but I, but I, I, to kill myself on behalf of everyone else to just rid the world of me, the, the problem. 
Um, and you know, what a, te- what a terrible, what a terrible curse. And of course, if, if we have, if we have somebody who has that idea, who, you know, who says I am a terrible problem and I should kill myself to make the world a better place, not attached to sexual desire, but that's just a form of depression or a form of, of, um, you know, it's an emotional malady. Right. Well, we have tremendous sympathy for somebody who, who feels like they need to, that they should die. And there, when we expend tremendous resources to, um, to reach people and say like, no, please don't feel that way about yourself. But, but if you, if you were to say like, well, this person wants to kill themselves because they have pedophilia or are a pedophile. Well, that sympathy just, just evaporates. Yeah. And most people, I mean, if you go out into the world and even mention the, the word, most people, you know, their face contorts and they're like, those people should die. It's like, Oh, all right. You know, <clears throat> and and so what? So, what, do do would pedophiles prefer to be seen as an identity? Well, within the within our contemporary sense of like expanding the description and definition of what identity is, and saying like, well, I, this is I am um, made this way. And this is a, this is a real, you know, I'm a real, I'm not an aberration. I am a, I am a kind of human person deserving of respect and deserving of uh, acknowledgement and recognition. But we still have pretty hard lines about where the edge of that is. Mm -hmm. And we don't allow it, you know, we don't, we, you can absolutely play sadomasochism but if you are truly a sadomasochist who wants to in, who wants to hurt people that are not, um, who who don't uh, who who don't acquiesce, what's the word? I'm uh, who submit. Know, um, no consent. Consent. That's the word. Okay. There you go. There are lots of people. There are lots of people who get off on hurting other people. And I think the issue of consent where the other person is like, yes, hurt me only works so far within the, within that desire because at the, and I wouldn't even say at the extreme edge, but innate to seems to me intrinsic to the desire to hurt someone or be hurt by somebody is the idea that this isn't consensual. You want someone to, if you, if you want to be dominated in your, in your heart, you want to be dominated hard, Mm -hmm. um, against your will. And you can pretend and you can convince, you know, you can talk about consent around that, uh, until that is until those are the limits and culturally you establish a community of people that agree the consent is the is the operative condition of those exchanges but the consent the consent is the um, is the linchpin that allows you then to fantasize and pretend that it's not there like you establish it okay mm-hmm. we're going into this 
consensually and you go, yes, right. Shake hands. And then you walk through the door and you're pretending it's not there. Well, that desire to pretend it's not there is indicative of the fact that the actual, you know, your actual desire to, to dominate or submit goes well, well past that line. And there are a lot of people that on the other side of that line that aren't fooled like the consent doesn't um, if the consent is there, then their desire isn't satisfied. They cannot pretend the same way other people can. They can't walk into the room and say, okay, now we're pretending it's not there. They need it to not be there. And those people then become aberrative and we, we despise them. The people that actually want to hurt other people. But the desire to is much more it's much broader than we allow, you know, we don't, um, we've, we've, we've made it culturally acceptable by putting a line somewhere and that line is consent, but the desire is actually very broad to hurt and be hurt. Right. So, you know, we're, we're drawing these lines and in our moment, in our time, 2019, we think that where we've drawn those lines currently are where they belong. And there are a lot of people that feel very confident that those lines are in the right place. And then on this side, it's cool and it's good and it's, and it's positive even. And on that side, it's bad and it's illegal and it's immoral. But we've put these lines here in 2019. They weren't even in this place in 2014. Right, sure. Let alone in in 1974. And where are those lines going to be in 2034? And that makes a lot, I think, just discussing it makes people very uncomfortable. um, because, Because we have this within our very flexible morality, there's a lot of inflexibility. Hmm. Um, and I think the closer you get to that edge, the harder, you know, the, the, the more vigilant you have to be about not crossing it. But, but it's operating within people's imaginations and you can't put those. I, well, I think there are probably a lot of people who, have have put a wall within their own imagination. So they feel like they're living according to their code, their personal code, where they've, you know, they've taken an external code and they've imposed it in their in their own head. But if you let your imagination wander over the over the line, you can get out into the forest pretty fast. And where the line of where that where the line of sympathy is, I think for a lot of people the line of sympathy stops at the at the line of legality. And to to maintain a line of legality but to extend sympathy past it to people that are over there and either wish they weren't or are over there and and ha- haven't even um, haven't even considered the possibility that 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 that's not where they belong. 
you know, what are, what's our obligation? And this is why I always, from the very beginning, didn't understand why we executed serial killers. We execute them because we want vengeance and because it's the only thing that seems like it could even begin to pay the debt. But of course it doesn't. Killing Ted Bundy doesn't, doesn't heal the world. And to not have Bundy to honestly, to tack up to a wall and poke with sticks. I mean, you know, I don't think Bundy should be afforded, um, a lot of, you know, we, we give, we give Bundy all the protections of the legal system to appeal and to appeal again. And we do that because it's necessary to maintain the edifice of the legal system. Because if we don't extend the legal system to Bundy, then, then we enter in, we, we enter, we, we, we have that doubt then about, well, if the legal system doesn't go all the way out to the fringe, then where does that line end? Where does a person in America not have the, le- the protections of the law? And you can't really do that because then you can, then local jurisdictions could make that line anywhere they wanted. And they do anyway, right? I mean, local jurisdictions continue to try to not extend the benefit of the law to all kinds of people. But so we let Bundy appeal a hundred times. Um, and, you know, and I'm sort of in that camp of like, well, once he's exhausted his appeals, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to, to suggest that we subject uh, Bundy to like a Mengele who's in there putting his hands in ice water to see how much pain he can endure. Mm-hmm. But boy, he, I feel like somebody like Bundy is a window on our souls. You mean like, like a, a, a resource that we could study or learn more about? Absolutely. <clears throat> but then you, logic, then, I mean, then, then you get into the whole situation of like, can, can we use the research that was conducted by Nazis? Should we use oh. that research or should we not use that research because it, it was evil? But what if yeah, there's some, wanna... what if there's a, a life, something that could save a life or heal, heal a child that could come out of that? Would, wouldn't it be good to have something positive come out of it? But I think the consensus is no, it, it's, it's uh, to be condemned and it's evil. You know, that's a consensus that is a line that's drawn here, but there are millions of people who believe that stem cell research right, right. Is, a, is a product of the greatest holocaust of all time, which is the abortion, uh, the arrow of legalized abortion mm-hmm. that we're living in. And, and, and a lot of us believe that having crossed that line, we'll, we hopefully never go back across it. And that um, the right to make reproductive choices is a, is a right that that began an era that is the future that represents the, the future, the way that humans will think and regard reproduction henceforth. But there are a lot of people, smart people, people listening to this show who believe that that line is aberrative and right. having crossed it, we've entered into a, a time w- that the future will regard as, um, as abhorrent. And when, when common sense overtakes us again and we go b- and we recognize the sanctity of life and we go back over to a time when that, that's restricted, we're going to look at 
the and you hear it all the time. You hear the, exactly this language that there are billion souls that have been lost in the you know in this in this horrible epoch and uh, or epoch and um, <laughs> and so you know stem cell research right that's that 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 is in this culturally it's in this sort of little little gap between two warring sides even in our own moment but like bundy we think about him as a when, when we talk about the source of him we do that thing where we keep falling back on his childhood what was his mom like well you know he exhibited these trends early on he must not have he must have been weaned too early all that crazy shit that we used to say, I mean, that was the DSM four used to say that homosexuality was a result of a, of a cold mother or something, you know, like that it was a, that it was a product of environment and, and again, nature versus nurture, the old, the, the, the old canard, but, but with Bundy, we don't, nobody took like put his cells under a microscope or tried to find the location or I mean, maybe somebody did, but it's not in the serial killer literature that I, uh, that I have consumed so avidly over the years looking for this kind of thing, looking for some, some greater interest and curiosity in what Bundy is what he it's more than what he symbolizes it's that kind of like we talked about uh, on the after show a couple of weeks ago where you feel like the 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 spread the bell curve of human capacity seems pretty wide from within it but it isn't it's not very wide no one has ever you know we we no one has ever flapped their wings and flown. Nobody has ever, we finally crossed the four minute mile, you know, like our restrictions are actually pretty <clears throat> prof profound. Right. And so if within the, if within our, um, our distribution of abilities and capacities, we have, you know, we can go, as, uh, as far down the selfless path as I guess mother Teresa, we still say is that, you know, we can, the, the, that our distribution goes from the saintly to the pathological, but really that's not that wide of a spread. Like the, the gulf between mother Teresa and Ted Bundy, like they both still had breakfast, lunch and dinner and neither one of them could live up more than a couple of weeks without water. And they both lived in towns, you know, they both knew how to presumably knew how to drive a car. Like they, they had more in common than they had, than they were, uh, separated by difference. So why would we, why do we like pull the, pull the blast doors down on all four sides as soon as, you know, as soon as the, the human impulse exceeds the bounds and, and bec it's because 
we're terrified of it in ourselves. If we don't draw that hard line, we're afraid we're all uh, perverts. And no one wants to unleash it. You know, no one wants to live in a, in a borderless world. This is the, you know, the libertarian or anarchist fa- fantasy is that, ah, just let everybody do what they want to do. And, and people are intrinsically moral and civilization will survive and, and flourish if it isn't managed, you know, like over managed by mm-hmm. people. But an, an extension of that is like, all right, well, let every predilection run wild. That scares the shit out of people. It isn't it. People don't want the cops and the Congress. They don't want to be managed personally. What they want is the weirdo across the alley to be managed. Right. They want to be able to call the cops when they see the lights flickering in the basement at, at four o'clock in the morning. Because there, but for the grace of God, go us. Hmm. And it's the, you know, it's the whole thing about the cops. The cops don't have a brain. I don't mean any individual cop, but the cops themselves don't, the, 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 the edifice of the cops that they don't have a brain. The cops are there to exercise the, the will of the people as expressed in the, in the people they appoint to do their work, the people they appoint to protect them from tax evaders and scoff laws and perverts and villains. But that, but you know, that villain line, God, I'm fascinated by it. Yeah. And it's not because I feel particularly, um, drawn personally to the other side. I don't want really to, I certainly don't want to be dominated and I don't really want to hurt anybody. I don't want to see anyone go poo. Like not interested (laughs) in that at all. No, no. I'm very glad that bathrooms have doors. I want, if you are going to go poo, I want to know as little about it as possible. And maybe that's cultural. Maybe if I'd grown up in a world where people were going poo all over or it was celebrated, like every time you went to the bathroom, somebody rang a gong and gathered around and it was like, Dan is making his soil. Let us all celebrate the soil. Oh, the soil. (laughs) Where, you know, from the soil comes life. And where does the soil come from? Dan's bum. (laughs) It's possible. Yeah, I suppose. We don't really do it. And I think it's just because although the soil is very important, it's stinky and nobody wants to, nobody <laughs> celebrates stinky. <laughs> except for the few, except yeah, for the German shy support there, people. Right, there right? are some people who will, who are a celebratory yeah. of that. Yeah, the hot Carls. <laughs> but that's not me. I don't, you know, I'm pretty, uh. I have just you ever have you, have, have you ever been in a situation where you felt like your your boundaries were being pushed? Because I feel like your boundaries are are pretty pretty wide open. Well, there's a difference between where my boundaries are and how I react when they're pushed. Like my personal boundaries, what I want, what I like, um, are not 
wide open. Yeah, I'm very sensitive to smell and to taste and to touch. Um, super sensitive to those things. And I don't like to smell things I don't like. I don't want to taste things I don't like. I don't want to be touched in ways I don't like. But when those things happen, I make every effort not to recoil and not to protest and not to, um, because I don't feel like my boundaries are where nature resides. I don't feel like my boundaries are, are the extent of what's good or natural or cool. And I think a lot of people do. I feel like a lot of people, when their boundary is crossed, they feel like that is um, where things become unnatural. And I think there are a lot of people that recognize that their boundaries are theirs and are personal, but they feel it's important to respect for them for them to respect their own boundaries, to establish them and to stay within them because they don't like being uncomfortable. But I don't mind being uncomfortable. And so my my boundaries about being touched get crossed all the time. As far as my uncomfortable, my boundaries of uncomfortableness, like being in a large crowd that's moving as a crowd and not, and, and I'm, and I'm sort of losing my autonomy. I go with it. Even though I'm, even though I'm uncomfortable, I go with it because mm -hmm. I'm, I want to see where it leads. I'm certainly always, uh, I'm always looking for that that vine that's hanging down to make sure that I have my eyes on it to know how to get out of this. I never go with, I never ever am in a crowd where I don't have my eye on every exit. And I'm talking about even in a, even in times square, the ways out are 25% of my conscious mind. Anytime I'm in a group of more than about 15 people, right. where are the, where are the escape routes? But I don't, I never turn back. Um, and that I think is even true in, you know, in, in intimate situations, you know, and, and, and partly it is, I mean, some of us are born with a journalistic impulse. Um, like I want to bring back what I saw and what I found. Right. I want to bring it back. I, I want to talk about it here. I want to write about it. And so I go, I go well past a, any place where I feel like I belong in order to come back and say, and come back with sympathy, mm -hmm. right? Not just to come back and go, you're not going to believe what the freaks over there are doing, but come back <laughs> and go, okay, well, you know, here's what that was. Here's what that seemed like it was about and seemed like what it was about to the people that were there as far as I could tell. You know, I read a description earlier today, my friend, Dan Kennedy, who runs the moth. Oh, you know him? Yeah, yeah, he and I have done a few 
Oh, that's cool. I didn't realize together. it. And you know all the cool people. Yeah, gosh, love the moth. He's a great dude. And, you know, he suffers from pretty profound and maybe even debilitating anxiety. Mm. But he's extremely, he's extremely lucid and he has this, uh, he has a mental kind of alacrity that's exciting and smart and funny. Uh, but he posted something that was like some kind of short essay on the difference between a gifted child and a high achieving child. And he was posting it because he, he was a gifted child and this little essay, the small essay provided him some insight and I was a gifted child and this essay, uh, this essay provided me some insight, even reading it at 50 years old, mm. because having been a gifted child in the era that we were, the right. 1970s, right. we didn't have a lot of insight into what that meant, how that was being measured, what our responsibilities were, and I think that was a big part of it. You know, you are a gifted child. And what are our responsibilities exactly? And a lot of us, I think, felt like our responsibility then, having been given this mantle, was to be the best at everything or to be to to be great people when we got older, you know, to have achieved everything. Mm -hmm. A lot and a lot of us labored under this because when they told us we were gifted children in the nineteen seventies, they didn't moderate i'm talking about the adults mm -hmm. they they brought that information to us with the with all the congratulations that parents at the time um sort of imagined was helpful like wow you're a gifted child like and they put us in separate classes and they but they were never clear what the expectations were and that's because they didn't know. They had no idea what the fuck they were talking about. Right. I mean, what they were doing was they were looking at what is the 1% of kids that don't seem to need any help and they keep scoring highly. Um, well, they're this 1% and I guess we should separate them out. But we don't know what to do with them. We're, they don't They don't seem particularly – they're not savants, right? They're, they don't want to do particle physics. They're actually, most of them just want to read and color and talk for right. the most part, you know, or just, and what this article said was what, you know, what constituted a gifted child or what constitutes one is that they get it. You know, you present them some information and they get it. Um, whereas I think you're most children, normal people need to hear it a few times, mm -hmm. you know, they, they, they hear it and they go, okay, and then they hear it again and they're like, nah, right, and then the third time, fourth time. And it isn't even really like, um, you know, when, we, when you think of being smart and being told you're smart, the way that they did it in the 70s, there was a moral component to it too. That mm -hmm. we, It wasn't just that we got things faster, it was that we were better. 
And, you know, just when somebody says, like, here's how a gyroscope works, and you go, oh, I get it. Can I go read now? That It's not necessarily better. You're not, you're not moral. Um, you just, you just get things faster. And, and for me, like if you told me something, I got it and I continued to get it. I remembered it from then on. And so you couldn't fill my bucket up fast enough because if you told it to me, like I, I pretty much got it. Now, once we, you got up into like theoretical math, the thing is I wasn't motivated by you congratulating me. I was just motivated by my interest. Mm-hmm. And so if you told me something that I wasn't interested in, I didn't care. And there were a lot of things I wasn't interested in. Some things I was, you know, and the, and the high achieving kids were the ones that were motivated by, um, motivated by getting it and proving it and working working hard and pleasing people. And you know, the, the gifted kid isn't, I wasn't motivated by, by pleasing people or, or grades or congratulations, just motivated by the, by interest and seventies and eighties schools had no idea what to do with kids like that. And they still don't to this day. Mm -hmm. What do you do with somebody that gets it? And doesn't care if you are happy about that. How do you turn them into, you know, we can't help ourselves. Like this kid is amazing. They're, you know, they're, we can use them. The culture can use this kid to put a man on the moon or maybe they'll grow up and be Saul Bellow. Right. There is, there is a responsibility around it to, to do something with that. Right. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. But I didn't want to I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. Right. And so all it did, and I feel like Dan Kennedy feels this way too. You walk out of childhood with this tremendous burden of guilt and responsibility for having been given this gift that all the adults are so full of praise Uh about, but you can see the expectation in their eyes. What are you going to do? And you know, and they, they test you all the time. They're like, well, name every kind of submarine. You're like, what? I don't know every kind of submarine. And then you see the disappointment on their face. Oh, I thought this kid was gifted. He doesn't even know every kind of submarine. It's like, hmm, I'm sorry. Sorry, I didn't know every kind of submarine. I, you know, like you wouldn't do that to another, for, to a regular kid. And so you come out of childhood just like pulling this sled of grownups and their expectation and their feeling that there's a moral component and a moral responsibility to being gifted, which is to say, just able to understand. And this, uh, this article was really short, but it, but it had a little table, you know, and all of the things on the table, the table was trying to distinguish between high achieving and gifted kids and everything on the gifted side of the table. I was like, well, yeah, right. I mean, that was, it's just that they weren't wrong. If gifted is a thing, and if these things describe a kid that has that, they weren't wrong because all these things are true of me and they aren't true of everybody. Right? I didn't like talking to other kids. I like to talk to grownups. I didn't want, I didn't care about grades. I often finished assignments and product, you know, finished the schoolwork and didn't hand it in. Wasn't interested in handing it in. 
Now, that never made any sense to anybody. It didn't make any sense to any grown-up. It was done. It was right here on the table. You left it. You went to school today, and you just left it on the table. You knew it was due today. And I'm like, yeah, I knew, I knew it was due today. I don't know. I forgot it. That's the thing that, that gifted kids end up saying a lot. Right. I forgot. I forgot it. You forgot it. You know, you worked on it for two weeks. It's great. It's like, yeah, sorry, I forgot it. And, you know, and teachers all the time had rules like, well, it's due on this day. And if, if it's late, we won't accept it. And I loved those rules because I never turned it in. You know, I love that challenge. <laughs> right. Oh, it's, if it's late, you won't accept it. Well, I guess it, you know, I forgot it today. And so I guess I blew it again. And, you know, getting D's like mass, uh, like amassing this report card full of D's. I certainly felt terrible about it. I was made to feel terrible about it. Everyone in my life constantly trying to either shame me or force me into doing it differently. Mm -hmm. But again, why would a kid choose that? Why would you choose that nature? And that, and that was another question adults used to ask all the time. Why would you choose this? Right. Like you have it done. You knew it. The day they introduced the topic, you knew it already. All you had to do was fill out the fucking homework <laughs> page. You didn't even have to think. You just knew it. You do it. It was like, well, yeah, why would I do it? Why would I fill out the page? Why? But why would a kid choose that? Why would a kid do that just to hurt themselves and other people? And, and the assumption with 70s and 80s psychology was that you were doing it for attention, you were doing it to control your parent. I think you, people still talk about it that way. You're doing it to control your environment. You're doing it to um, manipulate or uh, you know, assert. Mm -hmm. And so I was told that every time, every week, you know, you're trying to what what is it? Did your mother not suckle you? <laughs> And it's like, I just didn't, it's just what super doesn't interest me, whether right. you approve of whether or not I demonstrate that I get the thing you said, like none of it beyond, you know, the thing you said interested me and getting it interested me, but none of the other fucking ballet about it has any you know, any impact on me. And frankly, all of your fucking hatred and shame also doesn't motivate me mm -hmm. to do, to, to basically sully this pure thing, which is my interest in things. Why would I tarnish it? Why would I put, why would I smear your fucking poop on it? <laughs> The, the poop of your grades and your <laughs> applications and your fucking blue ribbons and stuff. And I don't know every kind of submarine. 